the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's in Luke chapter 9 that we get this statement, the gates of hell shall not prevail. So what does that mean? Are there gates out there attacking us? Find out what this passage means next on this edition of Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner. You know, we read that verse here in Luke chapter 9, the gates of hell shall not prevail, and we get this idea that there's gates on the attack. But really, what this passage means is something totally different, and we'll learn about it here today on Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. Welcome to our broadcast. We're in Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 27. We'll also spend some time in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. Join us for today's broadcast of Abounding Grace. Here's Pastor Gary Wagner. Our passage today begins with Jesus in the mountains praying alone. Now what is interesting is that all four of the gospel writers recorded Jesus going into the mountain and praying. But it is a characteristic of Luke to frequently refer to Jesus' prayer life. In fact, Luke refers to Jesus' prayer life in seven passages, which the other writers don't even mention. Luke tells us that Jesus prayed before his baptism. He prayed when his fame was beginning to increase. He prayed before he chose the twelve apostles. He prayed before he asked his apostles whom they thought him, him to be. He prayed before his transfiguration. He prayed before he taught his disciples how to pray. And at Gethsemane, before his trial and subsequent death, he prayed, each time alone. Jesus always prayed alone. He taught everyone else how to pray, but when he prayed, he prayed alone. And the reason is, Because prayer for Jesus and prayer for us are two entirely different things. When Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity incarnate, prayed to his Father, his prayer was direct and immediate to the first person of the Trinity. When we pray, we fellowship with the first person of the Trinity through the mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, and in the strength of the Holy Spirit. I want you to notice the three main reasons Jesus was found praying in his life. First, he was found praying in the midst of an incredibly busy life, a life wholly subjected to a constant high pressure of work. Second, he prayed when, as a man, he was subjected to the upsurge of deep emotion, especially the emotions of profound sorrow and great joy. And third, we find him praying in the midst of conflict, suffering, and on the verge of death. 
Those are the three times we usually find it the hardest to pray. But they are the times we need most to pray. And when we do, we follow the example of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, what did he speak of when he prayed? Well, you'll find thanksgiving and gratitude in his prayers. You'll find him asking God the Father for help and assistance to make important decisions. And you'll find him interceding for others. But his prayer life, which makes it so different than ours, was basically basically and supremely intimate, private communion with the living God, his Father. And the application I would make to our lives is simple and direct. And it is because Jesus loved to pray, he loves for his disciples to pray. Because he knows the pathway of prayer is the pathway to power and understanding. His prayer here was probably in earnest as he was about to teach his apostles some things he had not previously taught so openly and so forthrightly. But these subjects would lead them to a far better understanding of his true identity than the crowds that we saw last week who tried to force Jesus to be a political king. Now, right after he prayed, he asked the disciples what people were saying about him. Jesus asked, what are you hearing out there on the streets as to who people think that I am? Now, he wasn't asking this out of ignorance or curiosity as if he didn't already know the answer. Luke has reminded us time and again in the previous eight chapters that Jesus knows what is going on in the hearts and the minds of people, and he can perceive what they're thinking even before they speak. But he was using this question and answer tactic to teach his disciples who he really is and to show the contrast between the crowds who knew him superficially and those who knew him more deeply. Jesus is asking these questions because he is leading his disciples to make an open and public confession of faith in him as their Lord and Savior. And what a variety of wrong answers people held about Jesus in his day. They thought he was John the Baptist, resurrected, Isaiah, Elijah, Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets risen again. Now, the crowds liked Jesus, but they didn't really understand who he was. So he made them think. And they began to speculate and talk and argue with each other. They invented theories as to his identity and his mission. And it's almost as if we can hear them right now. Because they're not much different than people today. Tens of thousands of people in every age spend time like this, like these people, debating, arguing, inventing new theories, new doctrines, and rejecting others about Jesus and his gospel and his kingdom, setting forth their new views dogmatically without absolutely any question about the rightness of their position. Those people as people in our day intellectualized and debated and invented, bringing forth new ideas and new doctrines, they hoped would make them famous. But they then, nor now, ever came to the point of drawing near to Jesus Christ, our Savior. 
Listen to what Bishop J.C. Ryle said. They cannot quite make up their own minds what is true and what is right. Year rolls on after year and finds them in the same state, talking, criticizing, and fault-finding, speculating, but never getting any further. Hoovering like a moth over the Christian faith, but never settling down like the bee to feed on its treasures. They never boldly lay hold of Christ. They never set themselves heartily to the great business of serving God. They never take up the cross and become thorough Christians. And at last, after all their talking, they die in their sin, unprepared to meet God. Do not ever be content, beloved, with this kind of religion. It will not save us to talk and speculate and set forth opinions about the gospel. The Christianity that saves is a thing personally grasped, personally experienced, personally felt, and personally possessed. As in Jesus' day, so in our day. People can talk theology and argue theology brilliantly all day long, but never know Christ and never come to serve him, unquote. My friends, we must never be like that. The apostles were never like that. The apostles were certain of who Jesus is, even if they were confused about some of the details. After the poll, Jesus looks at the apostles and he asks, Now who do you say that I am? And Luke says that Peter answered with a simple confession, You are the Christ of God. Matthew remembers him saying, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And beloved, that is the heart of everything we believe as Christians. All of the rest of our theology is simply the expansion and the working out of the principles in that little statement, you are the Christ of God. Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew Messiah. He was sent from God. He was the one the Old Testament prophesied and promised that the people looked for all the way back to Adam and Eve. And the word Christ means the appointed one sent by God. God has chosen and appointed this particular man to carry out the task of mediator between God and man. And the apostles understood. In the Old Testament, you had various people anointed with oil. Christ's with little seas. You have the prophets and priests and kings all anointed with oil, consecrating them to their particular task, symbolizing their empowerment by the Holy Spirit, and each of them pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ, who would be our prophet to scatter our darkness, our priest to take upon himself our guilt, and our king to bring ourselves under control with lives in conformity to his will. He is the Christ. Peter and the apostles understood that. They knew what they were saying, although later on we're going to see that their comments and actions showed that they had profound misunderstandings of what the word Christ really meant and what Jesus really came to earth to do. But Peter's confession of faith was entirely correct, although some of his conceptions about Jesus was wrong. So Jesus proceeds in this chapter to teach them patiently and to correct them. Look at verse 21. 
After Paul makes this confession of faith, sorry, Peter makes this confession of faith, Jesus says something that on the surface appears unusual. He instructed them and warned them not to tell this to anyone. Tell them what? Matthew 16.20 tells us exactly what this has reference to. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. You're right, Peter. I am the Christ of God. Don't tell anyone. Now, later on, he's going to instruct them to tell the whole world. But there is a very good reason why Jesus told them, don't you apostles tell anyone this at this particular point in time. Remember the crowds that were fed the bread and the fish that I spoke about last week? Well, they were all excited now. Here is this prophet of God who's going to liberate us from Roman tyranny, so let's make him our king. Their hopes were high. Their their expectations were intense as to what this Messiah could do for them, but what they thought he would do was entirely wrong. The apostles themselves were mistaken in their concept of Christ's messiahship, and they had some of the false views that the crowds had at this point in time. So Jesus says, don't tell anyone at this point that I am the Christ. You really don't know what you're talking about yet. If people ask you what you mean, you're not going to be able to tell them, and that is not going to help. You're going to get the crowds all stirred up more, and you're going to make this an even more volatile situation, especially when you realize and you inform the crowds this Messiah is going to bring salvation by being violently killed. Now, that's going to throw them into real confusion. So, mom's the word for now, until you learn just a little bit more. While Peter's confession was correct with a few misunderstandings. It was simple, and yet it was bold, even though as yet, as Christ said, it was a bit dangerous. Many people, including the powerful Jewish leaders of that day, stood against Jesus. After all, Jesus didn't wear a crown. He didn't have any big army behind him. He didn't have any earthly kingdom to speak of. He came in the form of a mere servant. He had no wealth, no dignity, nor any marks of a king. So for Peter to make such a confession of faith at this point in time, you're the anointed prophet, priest, and king from God, not only required great faith in Jesus, it also involved courage. Now, of course, Peter was by no means perfect. He was sometimes unstable and overly emotional and ignorant of all of the full meaning of the confession of faith. Yet you and I would do well to imitate the zeal and the courage and the boldness that Peter displayed that day. Don't underrate Peter because of his faults. With all of his faults, he was, as one commentator said, a true-hearted, fervent, single-minded servant of Christ. With all of his imperfections, Peter gave us a pattern that we should follow. Hear J.C. Ryle once again. Zeal, like Peter's, may have its ebbs and flows and sometimes lack steadiness of purpose. Zeal, like his, may be ill-directed at times and sometimes make sad mistakes. But zeal, like his, is not to be despised. 
It awakens the sleeping. It stirs the sluggish. It provokes others to action. Anything is better than sluggishness and lukewarmness in the church of Christ. Let me say that again. Anything is better than sluggishness and lukewarmness in the church of Christ. He goes on and says, Happy would it have been for Christendom had there been more Christians like Peter. And then he adds Martin Luther, and then and fewer men like Erasmus. Now, if you want to know who Erasmus was, ask me today after service, but suffice it to say, he was a profound early church liberal. Ryle says, We should pray frequently that God would raise up more Christians of the stamp of the Apostle Paul, erring and unstable and ignorant of his own heart, as he sometimes proved. That blessed apostle was in some respects one in 10,000 men. He had faith and zeal and love for Christ's cause when almost all Israel was unbelieving and cold. We, know we need more men of this sort. We need men who are not afraid to stand alone and to cleave to Christ when the many are against him. Such men like Peter may err sadly at times, but in the long run of life will do more good than any other. Knowledge, no doubt, is an excellent thing, but knowledge without zeal and warmth will never do much for the world, unquote. Now go back to Matthew 16 and look at, look at Jesus' response to Peter's confession. In verses 17 through 19, he says this, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He says, Peter, do you know why you know the right answer when the crowds all got the answer wrong with answers like Jeremiah and John the Baptist and Isaiah and all the rest? It's not because you are smarter than they. It's because God opened your heart and enabled you to see things that others could not see. Verse 18 says, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not overpower it. Verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Let us look now for the rest of our time today at that one sentence in verse 18, where Jesus said, immediately after Peter made his confession of faith, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not overpower it. Now, the first thing I want us to ask and answer is this. Is Roman Catholicism correct in saying that this verse proves that Peter was the first pope? Now, I know none of you are Catholics here, but I want you to be able to witness to them. And I pray when you witness to Roman Catholics, you will know what to say concerning this issue, because they will bring this up. Look at Matthew 16, 15. Notice, it is not, he, Jesus is not speaking to Peter alone here, but to all the apostles when he says to them, but who do you say that I am? The you there in Greek is plural. Who do you all say that I am, is how you would read it. He isn't just speaking to Peter now. 
He's speaking to the whole body of apostles. So when Peter stands and gives his testimony, he's not answering simply for himself. He's answering for all the apostles. You are the Christ. So when Jesus says, upon this rock I will build my church, he is addressing Peter as a representative of his apostles on whose behalf he has just spoken. Now you'll have those who will argue that Peter does mean the rock, and that is true, and therefore he must be speaking only to Peter, right? But the problem is the word Petros for Peter is a masculine singular word, and when Jesus said, upon this rock I'll build my church, he used the word Petra, which is a feminine single word, therefore not referring to the same subject. So then, what did Jesus mean when he used these words, upon this rock I will build my church? What is the rock? Well, in its context, it could be nothing other than the confession of the apostles. They just confessed the truth concerning the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus says to, him, to them, the reason you know this is because you have been recipients of the revelatory blessing of God. And you have been called to be confessors and transmitters of that revelation. Now, Paul may have had this in mind. When in Ephesians 2.20 he said that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. All the apostles, except of course Judas, not just Peter, were spirit-inspired vehicles of divine revelation and the foundation of the church. And the only person that is given any prominence is not Peter, it's not one of the apostles, but Christ himself, the chief cornerstone. So when Jesus says, upon these confessing apostles, I will build my great church that will triumph in the world, he is speaking of the apostles as teaching vehicles of revelation. The Spirit-inspired teaching of the apostles is received by the church as a body of truth straight from God, bearing divine authority, and our one and only standard for truth and life in this world. It is our one and only foundation. So what the apostles spoke and wrote, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was God-breathed, incapable of error, and directly from the word, from the mouth of God. Whatever they asserted, while under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit on any subject, was truth. And it is still truth to this very day. So what Jesus is saying is that the apostolic and prophetic teaching, that is the Bible, because it was given to the apostles by Jesus through the Holy Spirit, is the firm, permanent, irresistible foundation of the church of Jesus Christ throughout the centuries with Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now, churches not build on, built on this foundation are, of course, then built on sand. But the firm foundation of the word of God, the apostolic prophetic word, is a foundation that is immovable and solid. Which means, beloved, you don't have to worry about it changing. You never have to worry about being replaced or removed or refuted. The problem is that for many Christians, 
and their churches. Their understanding of that foundation is shaky and shallow and uncertain and erroneous. And as a result, their lives and their churches become shaky, shallow, uncertain, erroneous, and easily intimidated and seduced by this evil culture. Well, that's all the time we have. This has been Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner, the ministry of Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. It is our goal and desire that you would abound in grace through the preaching and teaching of God's Word. And that is why we come to you on a daily basis. Now, as we close out our time together, we also realize that some of these messages that are presented here on Abounding Grace are well worth reviewing again at your convenience. Maybe you joined us a bit late. Well, we have copies on CD. They're just $5. Mention today's date as you call or write to us. Here's how to get in touch with us. The phone number is 408-866-5607. That's 408-866-5607. You're welcome to also visit our website, learn a bit more about us. We're at reformedheritage.org. Again, reformedheritage.org. And then, of course, if you would love to partner with us, if you're feeling led of the Lord to become a financial partner with us as we continue this ministry here on this station, please write to us at PMB number 402. And the address is 1484 Pollard Road, Los Gatos, California, The zip code is 95032. Or, again, simply call us, 408-866-5607. That's 408-866-5607. You're also welcome to join us for worship. Sunday services here at Reformed Heritage Church are at 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. We meet at the Lone Hill Church 2 in the afternoon. Directions can be found at reformedheritage.org or by, again, calling 408 866-5607. We thank you for joining us and trust we'll see you again next time we get together for another broadcast of Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner.